following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Whatever you need to do to relieve the tension in your body, you have something. Bruce, would you turn the top two lights up about halfway, maybe a little less than halfway? Great, thanks. Welcome again, everyone. So we're looking at, uh, we're concluding actually this section in Ajahn Chah's book that more generally is about integrity and specifically um, one way that ethical conduct, uh, morality, integrity is taught in the Buddhist tradition is to really look at well, what is the root of unskillful behavior. So instead of saying, you know, don't kill, don't steal, don't sleep around, it's more interesting to, and more important to see what is it that leads us into unskillful actions. And it really has to do pretty obvious, I think. It has to do with our relationship to our sense experiences. We're having sense experiences, of course, all the time. We're seeing things, we're hearing things, we're thinking things, we're touching things, smelling and tasting things. And we, you know, we have a particular attitude or a particular view about those sense experiences. Some of you maybe were here when Ajahn Chah was, uh, Ajahn Punadama was teaching on Friday night and Saturday. He had a workshop here. He's a monk, a Buddhist monk from up in Canada near Thunder Bay. And he said something like, just describing our predicament as human beings, what we call samsara, the cycles of stress and suffering that human beings tend to cycle through. He says, we have this mind that knows, the heart mind that knows, right? We recognize this. Awareness is as fundamental to who or what we are as anything is. Knowing is happening. So there's this knowing happening, but there's something about this knowing, the, con- the way it's conditioned or the habit of this knowing is it wants an object to know. It's not just that the mind knows, but the mind wants to know an object. So we have a knowing quality of our mind. And it's looking for an object to know. Have you noticed that? I mean, this shouldn't sound abstract or philosophical. This should seem, oh yeah, that's what happened today. You know, moment by moment, the mind that knows is looking for something to know. It's a mind in search of an object to know. And then eventually, not eventually, it's always then finding an object, because they're all around. The sight is an object, the sound, as they're being known, is an object. So there are many possibilities for what the mind can attune to. Oh, this is being known. And the mind is trying, is seeking an object to know in order to be satisfied, but, as you've noticed probably, even though we're knowing an object, we're constantly not satisfied by the object that's being known. So we seek another object to be known. We know that object, and we're also not satisfied by that object. So then we seek another object to know. We know another object. We're not satisfied by that object. And this is a 
description of a human life, when we strip away the story and we look at the actual psychological dynamic of a human being, that's what's going on. There's a mind that knows, desiring an object to know, finding an object to know, not being satisfied with that object. Then there's that mind that knows, seeking an object to know, finding an object to know, not being satisfied by that object. And a mind that knows, seeking an object to know, finding an object and not being satisfied by it. All day long, week after week, year after year. And if we're completely consumed by that pattern, then we don't realize how exhausting and frustrating that pattern is. It's actually a step forward. It's a powerful insight to realize that that's not working. Because until we start having that insight, that being this mind that knows, seeking an object to know, finding an object to know, and not being satisfied, until we see that that's unsatisfying, that it doesn't lead anywhere, we won't, we won't consider another possibility. We just continue on over and over and over. You know, in, the, in Buddhism, there's you know, all kinds of very disturbing images, like there's no beginning. You can't find a beginning to these cycles. Human beings have been doing this a long time, an in, in, uh, inconceivable time. Or another time the Buddha talks about how we've been doing it so long that we have shed more tears in doing this than there is water in the four great oceans. Pretty powerful image. Joko Back, a Western teacher, um, one of the great Western matriarchs of Buddhism, Western Buddhism, said something like, uh, described it as the promise that's never kept. And it really comes down to the way we understand or the, what we take our sense experience to be. And we want to be really honest about this, but see something beyond it, like a, another possibility. But when we're honest, when we actually observe our relationship to sense experience, sense experience is just an object being known, right? When I'm eating something, that's a sense experience. It's the mind is knowing the taste of the food, is knowing the chewing, is knowing the swallowing. All those tactile experiences and smell experiences and taste experiences are being known. And if we were really satisfied with the meal we had at lunch today or dinner today, well, then we'd be satisfied. But how long? You know? So it's not that we don't get some satisfaction, but it's like sand through the fingers. It, that satisfaction doesn't last long before... You're like me, you know, you have something for lunch, and then the mind goes, it'd be nice to have some chocolate now, you know, and then the mind goes, it'd be nice to have some green tea now, and then the mind goes, is there any more chocolate left? (laughs) You know, is there any more lunch left? I wonder if there's something in the news to read. Anybody interesting, send me an email. So... This is the mind seeking an object to know, finding objects, never being satisfied for long with the object that it's knowing, so that it's always seeking another object. So when we get that, you know, that bigger picture and we begin to see it, 
we begin to sense how this doesn't lead anywhere, then we raise the question, well, what what is at the root of this mind seeking happiness in a way that doesn't deliver? We, we basically get interested in the whole experience of being sensitive to sense experience. And the view that we will get happiness through our sense experiences. This is a view that's so conditioned that we never even see it as a view, right? I mean, some of you have been practicing for a while now do, but generally speaking, we never question that approach to life, that the way we get happy is we line up a, lo- a number of really pleasant sense experiences for ourselves. And a really happy person is a person who's been able to line them up so that they're getting one pleasant sense experience after another. Remember, thinking is also a sense experience of thinking pleasant thoughts, seeing pleasant sights, hearing pleasant sounds, having pleasant touches, pleasant smells. And we line them up, and then we consider ourselves successful in life. You know, we're lucky, or we're great, because we have one pleasant sense experience after another. But even if you're one of those few people that seems to be able to do this, and I don't know too many of these people, I don't know about you, that has just one pleasant experience after another, even being dependent on one sense, pleasant sense experience after another is not pleasant. So, this orientation, seeking happiness through sense experiences, is inherently stressful. There's no way around it even if you happen to be fortunate enough to be able to set in motion one pleasant sense experience after another, it's still stressful because what you're cultivating with this approach to life is the mind that's dependent on pleasant sense experiences. And the dependency itself is stressful, even if you get pleasant sense experiences. Needing pleasant sense experiences is stressful. In the same way that not liking unpleasant sense experiences is stressful. So it's a setup. And we can wake up to that as long as we're not too busy, consumed, by trying to set in motion one pleasant sense experience after another, which is generally our obsession. But when we step back from that momentarily and we take a look around and get a sense of what's going on, we begin, it just dawns on the mind, like that insight and intuition arises. Where does this lead? Look, where is the end of desire? Like, the completion, like, the mind that knows, sought an experience to know, experienced that experience, and then was satisfied in some lasting, permanent way. Has that ever happened? Think about how many nice experiences, if you're fortunate, you've had a lot of nice experiences, but have they been, last, uh, in a lasting way, satisfying? It's just, in a sense, what's the appetite? Well, that was pleasant. Is there another pleasant experience? That's what the mind does. When, the, when we're gratified, when we actually have a pleasant sense experience, the result isn't some lasting satisfaction. The result is, is there anything else I could crave? You know, frosting on this cake, and then frosting on the frosting of this cake, and 
You know, we always want another pleasant experience on top of the pleasant experiences that we've had. When we've had a run of unpleasant experiences, we want pleasant experience. When we've had a run of pleasant experiences, we want something to top it. It's always the same thing. We want another pleasant experience on top of whatever we've had. And that hunger is stressful. So it doesn't matter if you're one of the unfortunate people in life and you've had one bad thing after another happen to you, or you're one of the fortunate people in life and you've had one good thing happen after another. Still, as long as we have this orientation that my happiness will come from having a pleasant sense experience, then we're still operating in what the Buddha would call an ignorant way or deluded way, but what we could call an ordinary way. This is what an ordinary human being does. Is it An ordinary human being is constantly seeking happiness in sense experiences that never deliver anything that's lasting. So, we're always left being hungry. And this idea is sort of exaggerated with this image of what's called a hungry ghost. It's one of the realms in the Buddhist cosmology. You know, they're animals, they're human beings, they're celestial beings, they're radiant gods and, and beings in hell. And all of these beings, you know, just as a, you can just use it as a metaphor, maybe, maybe more than a metaphor. It doesn't really matter. What matters is this is useful, this is a useful description of our existence that could make sense. Because even as a human being, even in this life, sometimes we're in hell. Sometimes we're a radiant God. You know, it just depends on our particular circumstances. And you can see, like, how we range. And one of those particular realms is called the hungry ghost realm. Beings with really huge bellies, huge appetites, but their mouth is as small as a pinhole. So they can never satisfy their appetite. And so that image is helpful to understand this particular teaching that Ajahn Chah has been kind of picking up over and over again in the last few chapters of this book, where he's really talking, and in Buddhism this is not uncommon, about the danger of sense experience. And this is such a provocative image, because we generally think sense experience is kind of nice, and we look forward to pleasant sense experiences. And it's not that eating ice cream, or having a warm bed, or loving touch, or, you know, it's not that these things are in and of themselves dangerous. But what's dangerous is the reinforcement of that pattern in the mind that thinks it's going to get lasting happiness from these pleasant experiences. That's what we need to be aware of. Because that view, that sense experience, is the way to find real happiness, is the essence of ignorance, human ignorance. And it's what causes wars and causes all the terrible things in the world. Is they All of the terrible things flow out of that basic mistake that the things of experience leads to ultimate happiness. That's why we're willing to kill. That's why we're willing to cheat and manipulate. And then, of course, all of those behaviors, those mind states, they cause other people to cheat and other people to kill and other people to harm, which means we're affected by that. And then we live in hell. 
those of us who are fortunate, we grow up at a place like Minneapolis that's relatively orderly, where our greed and aversion is somewhat contained by rules and shame and other external and internal forces that kind of keep us behaving well enough. <coughs> and it can be hard for us then, you know, when we have our lungs and Whole Foods and IMAX theaters and Minnesota Nice Friends and we have all these, you know, relatively stable and nice things, it can be harder for us to understand the danger in such experience. We have to look a little bit more closely at the feeling, the experience of the dependency of the mind on such experiences. The Buddha has lots of graphic images, as I mentioned. One image that he uses a lot is an animal caught in a trap. And, you know, if you've ever seen an animal caught in a trap, it's a heartbreaking experience. Because we know what it feels like to want to be free. Or we know what it feels like not to want to die. Right? Because all of us have had some little dance with death. Whether, you know, we were walking along the north rim of the Grand Canyon and we just looked over a little bit. I mean, maybe that's as close as we've gotten, or maybe uh, an accident, car accident, or whatever it might be. But there are moments when some experience has brought that up. So when we see someone caught, see an animal caught, or see a human being, even a good friend, caught by some the grips of some disease, or the grips of some terrible life experience like a divorce, or breakup, or job loss, or death, you know, a lot of you have been with friends or family members who are dying, who didn't want to die, and just know that struggle. And so, this is an image that's used uh, to exaggerate, to help bring our attention to the mind, this mind's dependency on sense experience. Like, we can consider some of the things... <coughs> that we just take for granted, like our health, like our house, like having good food. And then if that was taken away, we would be like that frightened, angry beast, struggling, not wanting things to be the way that they are. It's easy to miss when we're, you know, able to get a lot of what we want. But as soon as we don't get what we want, you know, we want this relationship to continue, but the other person doesn't want to be in a relationship. And then we really see that dependency on such experience. Or we, we want some particular thing in the fridge, and the person we live with ate it. And it's not there, and we were expecting to eat it. Or we wanted to watch something on the Internet, and now... You know, we have Minneapolis Wi-Fi, and it doesn't, it's not very consistent, as some of you know. And so sometimes you can, you know, stream video, and sometimes you can't stream video. And it can feel such a personal insult. Like somebody's out to get us when, you know, we don't have Internet access, or we don't, you know, whatever it might be that feels insulting to us. So that's the telltale sign. And again, it's not that it would be it would be so bad to have that internet 
to be able to watch what we want to watch. But what we want to see is that dependence is something to see as, as a danger in our life. It's dangerous for the mind, the heart, to be dependent on what's not dependable. Expecting something to be when we know very well that it won't always be that way. We want to build a happiness. We want to discover a happiness that's unconditioned, that's not going to come and go, that doesn't, you know, isn't there sometimes and not there sometimes. Because otherwise what we're, we're banking on is delusion. It's like, well, I've got happiness and I'm just going to pretend like it's going to be here forever. You know, I'm feeling healthy. I'm just going to pretend like it's going to be like this forever. My relationship's going well. I'm just going to pretend like it's going to be here forever. Even though all we have to do is look around and we realize it's not going to be here forever. I mean, we, we have so many personal examples of people who are, who have lost exactly what we're dependent on to no action of their own, let alone because of their own actions. And the thing about, it's, it's not even so much that our dependency on sense experience is stressful, but the worst thing about that dependency in living life uh, for sense experiences is we never get curious about anything else. The only thing we're curious about are sense experiences that might be temporarily satisfying, you know, new kitchen devices that might be kind of fun to figure out how to use and new movies to go see. I'm going to go see The Hobbit on Friday night, probably, you know. It's like... <laughs> you know, and probably we're going to be somewhat disappointed. <laughs> but still, you know, it's like what we, you know, we can build a week on this. I mean, I'm, I'm getting better and I'm building my life around these things. Whatever they might be. You know, vacations, interactions, getting rid of bad things. You know, we're building our lives on things, and they don't can't, they don't end up being much. So there's always something else we have to do. And we'll just keep doing that until we start having that insight that this is ultimately not going to take care of us. And then, then it sort of begs this question, well, are we willing to challenge our attachments? Like once we start having that intuition that being dependent on sense experiences ultimately is stressful, doesn't ultimately lead anywhere that we consider to be, you know, a lasting happiness. Then so, then we're, we're suspicious of attachment. But the thing about attachment is it feels so exciting to want something, or to want to get rid of something. So this is the thing that's very intoxicating, the, the drama around attachment, around fear, like what we want to get rid of or what we want to get. So once we start seeing some danger in attachment, in all of our identifications, then we, we get confused because it's like, it seems like the opposite to being attached is to be afraid of attachment. You know, so either we're attached and dependent on our sense experiences, whatever they might be, or we're afraid. 
And this is sort of this difficult middle ground where in order to move away from our attachment, we have to emphasize the, uh, the fear or the, the wholesome fear of attachment. It's like, ooh, it's shrinking back. Ooh, I want to be careful. Like, let's say you've been, you've gone out and dated somebody and got involved in a serious relationship and then a painful breakup. And then falling in love, dating, painful breakup. Falling in love, painful, or dating, maybe painful dating. (laughs) And then painful breakup. But in case, then, because you're no longer just consumed in repeating that pattern, you're observing the pattern, and now, because you've been observing the pattern, there's some wisdom that suggests maybe this doesn't lead to happiness. Not that it's bad, but maybe it doesn't lead to happiness. So then as you see somebody who's attractive to you, and you're drawn to set emotional relationship, and maybe now there's a sense of danger, like, and in this, when the danger comes up, it will be hard to um, tease out, like, the danger is about the dependency on the relationship, expecting to get some lasting happiness from another person. It's not that the relationship itself is dangerous, but the neediness, the dependency is dangerous. So it's going to be awkward, and we're going to, in a sense, overcompensate where we just assume the whole thing is dangerous. Food is dangerous, relationships are dangerous, life is dangerous. And then we know we've swung over to some nihilistic view, right? That's that overcorrection. And that doesn't work. We don't feel happy. And eventually it will dawn on us, this doesn't seem to be leading to happiness either. You know? Attachment, dependency doesn't seem to lead to happiness. Rejecting happy, re- rejecting pleasant experiences, that doesn't seem to lead to happiness. And that, and then that brings us back into the world of sense experience. Well, is there a way to be a sensitive human being? To be a person that finds some experiences pleasant, some experiences unpleasant? To not be afraid of pleasant experiences or unpleasant experiences? But just not to be expecting them to be more than what they are. So when we're having a delicious meal, there's that sensitivity. This is really pleasant. This tastes really good. But it's just pleasantness. It's just a pleasant experience. I'm with this person. It was really nice to be with this person. We seem to get along right now. But I understand that this person here is a bundle of habits. That person is a bundle of bundle of habits. These two bundles of habits are going to be interacting, and sometimes it's going to be heaven on earth, and sometimes it's going to be really difficult. And there's nobody controlling this interaction that we call our relationship. And it will be pleasant, it will be unpleasant. So, I'm not going to expect it to lead to happiness. It's just going to be what it's going to be. Sometimes it will be really nice, but sometimes it's going to be really challenging. And I can either be in the relationship or not being in the relationship. Because when it, this relationship isn't about some lasting or permanent happiness, then it takes a lot of the neurotic energy out of whether we should be together or not. It's like, either one's okay. Because I don't need, I don't, I'm not living with this idea that in order to have that lasting happiness, 
I need this kind of person, or I need this kind of kitchen, or I need this kind of, you know, this set of clothing, or this, whatever we think we need to be happy, which of course is constantly changing. And it begins to change our relationship to sense experience. So initially, our relationship to sense experiences, we don't even realize it, we're not even conscious of it, we're enslaved by sense experience, we're constantly seeking out salvation through sense experience, but we don't even realize our enslavement. That's how enslaved we are by it. We're led around by the nose, you know, like the big, powerful ox with the little ring in its nose, and you tie a rope to that, and even a little girl, a little boy, could make the big beast do whatever it wants to do, because they just don't want to feel that little tug in this way. But they're so much more powerful than the person leading them around. They could easily you know, just refuse to do anything. It's the same thing with us. You know, we're so intoxicated by the possibility of happiness through the next sense experience. We just follow the lead. We don't question it. Because we're afraid of the tug. Desiring something but not acting on the desire. This is what the practice teaches us. That just because we hate something doesn't mean we have to get rid of it. And just because we want something doesn't mean we have to get it. That it's okay just to feel the wanting sometimes. And then when we make peace with wanting without acting on it, then the next time there's wanting, we can get that object or not get that, pursue that object or not pursue it. But we're not afraid to not pursue it because we've made peace with the feeling of wanting. We're not afraid of craving. Same thing, if somebody irritates us or some experience irritates us, we could get up and rage if we want, or we could just be do what's next. Because we're not afraid to feel the irritation, we don't have to act on that emotion. We can feel irritation without taking it personally. Oh, that's just that feeling. We can be attracted to a human being without asking them to marry us or become our partner. Right? Which is especially important if you already have a partner. (laughs) But that's our inclination. It's like we get so confused by being attracted, but why wouldn't we be attracted even if we're in a relationship with another person. That's just the way we're conditioned. But we don't need to be confused by that attraction. Oh, that's just attraction. That's just lust, or whatever it is. You know, it's just that feeling. I don't need to be confused by that. I don't need to construct a somebody who will be happy if they act on it. Same thing with anger. I don't need to construct a somebody who will be happy if I destroy that, or get rid of that, or rage about that. So our relationship to sense experience begins with an enslavement where we're mostly unconscious and just being led around by the nose to this more natural, appropriate fear. Like, I got a sense that my relationship to sense experience has caused me a lot of suffering and I want to be really careful. And this is a little tight, this middle ground. But it's better than being completely lost and enslaved by our desires and fears. So even though it feels a little tight and neurotic to like, I should be careful when I'm around people I'm attracted to. I should be careful when I'm out in the stores. I should be careful, you know, when I'm watching TV by the different triggers that are arising, the things that bring up a lot of desire, the things that bring up a lot of fear. Not to believe them. Not to believe the sense of dependency that comes from those sense experiences. I want to be careful. So this is this middle ground in practice where there's a lot of care we're paying it. Mindfulness is really about, honey, 
be careful. It's easy for you to get lost. It's easy for you to get intoxicated by sense experiences. Be careful. But that's not the end of practice. That's just we're getting started. Because then, with more and more insight, you realize that it isn't the sense experience itself that's dangerous. The danger is the attitude we have about sense experiences. So then, we actually, in this third place of practice, we actually, it's helpful at least at times to move back into the world of sense experiences more wholeheartedly. So like, for example, if you've avoided parties for 20 years because you've always ended up suffering, <laughs> you know, seeking something in parties, never really getting anything that's meaningful, and so you just decide forget parties. But then maybe later, you actually go to parties and you notice all that stuff getting triggered. But now you're not confused by it. And maybe you can have a somewhat satisfying conversation in the party, you know. Not that you have to be at the party, but you don't not have to be at the party. You're not dependent on avoiding parties. First, we're dependent on going to all the parties. Then we're dependent on avoiding all the parties. And then we get to the enlightened stage where we can either go to the party or not go to the party. You can either make the new purchase or not make the new purchase. We can live with the car and just keep putting money into it, or we can sell the car and buy a brand new pretty car, you know? And so then our de decisions in life, to get married or have a partner, or to not be married or not have a partner, it's not based on this dependency. Who knows what it will be based on? We can just let nature make the decisions of our life. So instead of there being a somebody who's seeking lasting happiness through sense experience, we just let the personality unfold. But now we've teased out over the years of practice, we've teased out the notions that sense experiences lead anywhere. They don't lead anywhere to except just the bad experience. That's it. And if there's ignorance, then they lead to that sense experience plus the reinforcement of the mind thinking it's going to get something from the next sense experience. And that's what we do now. You know, that's where we are now in our lives. Most of the time, we're not only having a lot of sense experiences that are just what they are, but we're reinforcing a mind, the habit of mind, that thinks that next sense experience is really going to be the ticket. And it will be lasting, the happiness. Because we're, we feel so compelled. It's so important. You know, even little things like getting some food out of your tooth, you know, if I only get this food, if I could just buy some floss, I'll be happy. <laughs> and the reason it feels that way is because we've made ourselves so miserable now, and then it, it really will be a, a temporary, but it will be a relief when we finally get it out because the misery we're creating right now in our mind, because it's not out, will go away when we do get it out. But then, that's just, you see, we've just created our own little drama. And then we relieve ourselves from it when we get, you know, the, the piece of food out of our tooth or whatever it might be. So it's like we're, we're doing two things. We're reinforcing, we're literally constructing the hungry beast and we're throwing the scraps every once in a while. But the hungry beast, just that momentum of being a hungry beast, it just gets increased. It's increasing and increasing. So the Dharma practice, this path that the Buddha taught, it's understanding that this hungry beast is there, and then eventually understanding that that hungry beast 
It's a construction of the mind. It's not self. It's like a huge, very intricate habit that's been constructed through culture and through genetics and all these interdependent forces. And we don't need to be seduced or confused by it. That we see it, we respect it as something being known, because it is being known. We see it, we feel it. It's just something being known. But we don't need to identify with it. So that's that restraint place in practice where we're just, I'm not going there. I'm not going to pretend that the hungry beast is me, that I'm that hungry beast, the person who needs this person to love me, the person who needs more to eat, the person who needs, you know, whatever, to get rid of something. I'm not going to believe it. I'm not buying into it. And then eventually, the practice of like, uh, the Buddhist image for this is it's really powerful, and I'll end it here and open it up is this image of, of a herder, a shepherd, that during the rainy season, when the crops are growing, then the, the person herding the cows or the sheep or whatever, they have to be very vigilant because if the cattle deviate off the path into the crops and crush the crops, the farmer's going to get them and beat them or they'll be charged for a crime. And so, um, it's, so you have to be really vigilant. That's that middle stage. But after the crops are out, then the farmers don't mind if the cattle go into the fields and poop. I mean, it's fertilizer. And then the herder or the shepherd, they can be much more relaxed. They just need to know that the cattle are somewhere in the vicinity. They don't have to tap them this way and tap them that way to keep them off of the crops. And it's the same thing. When we become more wise, about sense experience, so that the mind isn't expect, expecting happiness to come from sense experience. Then if somebody hands us a delicious meal, we don't have to be afraid of it. We can just notice it's really pleasant, knowing that it will last for a while and then it will be over. But we have so teased out the tendency to want to expect it to lead to any kind of lasting happiness that we don't have to be afraid if a lot of pleasant experience comes our way. And then if they stop coming our way, we're not disappointed because we never expected it to last and we're not expecting it to provide lasting happiness. And it's really a question if we expect the world to bring happiness or whether happiness is something that's inherent. And this is something that people might want to share in the last 15 minutes. You know, your own experience at times in your life we really expected the world to deliver happiness to you. At times when you realized that happiness was in something inherent, internal, something to be realized here and now, not something to be gotten through some experience or some possession. So it would be nice to hear from people. Of course, any questions that you have or appropriate, please say your name if you decide to speak up. Yeah. Yeah, great example. And you can just trace 
you know, the three places, like times when you're completely blinded by it, and the mind unconsciously just believes that if we got this artwork up, I would be happy. And at times when you're, you're restraining yourself from doing that because you know how exhausting it is. But then times when you let yourself indulge, but you're not confused by the indulgence. Like you're actually thinking about it. You're talking with your partner, well, maybe we could do this. And wouldn't that be fun? And then you let it all go. You know, at some point, you're like, oh, and then we've got to buy that. And, oh, that's a hassle. And then the whole thing implodes, and you're okay. Or right in the middle of it, you go, but... You just check, you just look, you know, so you're in the middle of that sort of expansive discussion, you know, where possibilities are bubbling. And then you just stop, and you look at each other and you go, but it's okay right now, isn't it? You know, and you're just like, oh yeah, I'm content with the house, with the condo right now. So if we do something, that's great. But if we don't do something, that's great. You see, you get in that equanimous place. And then... The choice to do that extra thing, you can do that because maybe it's an expression of joy or love, but it's not this neurotic need. You don't need to do that to be happy, but it doesn't mean you don't have to do it. Maybe that's something you're going to do because it's it's like a, a natural movement of the heart, an expression of joy. It's not harming you or other people. But if it's about being happy, then it is harming you, you know, so then you restrain. But if there's none of that neurotic attachment, dependency, then you can either do it or not do it, because you're content not doing it, but you, it's okay to do it. It's not harming you to do it. Yeah, thanks for sharing that good example. Yeah. See you again. I'm sorry, I forgot. Well, that's, that's the ticket, really. But the thing is, initially we'll think of generosity in more stereotypic terms. I'm helping somebody else. But it's really important as you're doing that service and really finding the wholesome joy and aliveness in doing that, you want to also be mindful of that, not just do it reflexively, but be interested, curious of it, because you want to discern that that generosity basically is available in any situation. You could run the bathwater at home for yourself, and it could be just as satisfying an act of generosity as serving food at a food shop or something like that. So that your whole life, whether you're taking care of yourself or you're taking care of somebody else, can come out of generosity. That's like, was it Mary? Susan, sorry, Susan. Says about, you know, like if you decide to picture condo, that could be an expression of generosity, like you're taking care of yourselves. And that wouldn't be neurotic. It could be just a beautiful expression of generosity. And it's actually not that different than going out and volunteering and building a house for Habitat for Humanity. Yeah. Ellen.
I think the something the initially the attachment there was an attachment. You know, I, I initially worked in business right out of college, and uh, and when I got interested in meditation a few years out of college, the strong desire wasn't to run a dharma center. The strong desire was to be free from suffering, and uh, and that desire is still there, but it's really changed over the years. First, it was very much what I talked about, that middle stage where of like retreating from the world because it was so messy for me and I had so many attachments, you know, to success and being powerful and being beautiful and being liked and all those sorts of things that it really felt necessary to retreat from that for me. And, um, but now, you know, it's like uh, my, it's like, I saw that that retreating itself is its own kind of dependency, you know. So actually running an organization like Common Ground kind of brings me right into the middle of messiness in a lot of ways. You know, it's not easy. I mean, we all have difficult jobs, or many of us do. And this is in some ways an ideal job, but it's also quite challenging, too, to, you know, kind of be in the middle of an organization. And, And so... In some ways, it would be so nice not to be doing this. (laughs) As much as this is so supportive, you know, so I kind of swing both ways. Like, in terms of what desires get triggered, you know, a lot of the desires is like being somewhere quiet. And, you know, some of the desires are just appreciating, you know, the community and the health of the community and how to make it better. That brings a lot of joy and satisfaction, too. But I don't think I'd be, I mean, I'd be disappointed if I was taken away and the place fell apart. I don't think I'd be disappointed if I was taken away and things continued on in good ways. Yeah, oh yeah. So this comes right to the crux of what we've been talking about tonight. How to have a beautiful experience, in your case, where you have a good teaching experience where you're... Yeah, yeah. And, and so to, to, to ask yourself, well, right in the middle of that, as you're hearing your teacher, your students sort of read from their papers or you're reading them and just feeling that wholesome satisfaction that they really have matured and they're doing great work and 
there's this mutual respect, they respect you, you respect them, and all these different wholesome factors, there they are. And to remember right in the middle of this, that, like, to be mindful in that moment is to be mindful, this is pleasant. This is pleasant. And part of recognizing clearly that this is pleasant is also to recognize, and this will change. Because this pleasantness has arisen due to a particular set of causes and conditions that have come together in this somewhat magical way, you know, that can never be counted on. You know, but it is like this now, so we don't want to be in denial that it's nice. It is nice now. But part of seeing that it's nice is seeing the fragility of that niceness, that it won't always be this way. And so we don't, it doesn't occur to us, like if you're in the middle of a relationship, an intimate relationship, and it's really healthy and beautiful now, does it ever occur to you to recognize it's really nice now. It's really humming along now. But it won't always be this way. It doesn't occur to us to say that to ourselves. And to acknowledge that. Same thing if your body is feeling kind of healthy now. Does it occur to us to say, sickness is around the corner? Not to be morbid, but just to understand, actually it makes it more poignant and beautiful. The health that we have now is more beautiful knowing that it won't always be this way for those of you who are still young, you know, and have certain qualities because of your youth. Of course, you never, it never occurs to young people, it didn't to me at least, you know, how wonderful it is to be young. And uh, same with old people. Like, some of us, I think, I would never want to be young again. God, I would never want to go through my 20s again. <laughs> or whatever. You know, and then to realize... Well, maybe we do have to go through a place again next time around, or next time somebody, you know, we fall in love, and there we are acting like a teenager again, or something. Yeah, thanks for putting that up. Yeah. I was just going to um, ask you with regard to what you just said, You see, the discontent is because we lost something that the mind made valuable. As long as that's that wonderful flavor she gets when things are really humming in the classroom, when the mind has made that into something personal, then when it's not there, it feels personal. Like we, it's a personal betrayal because now all I have to do is pick up books. You know, that's an empty, hollow existence compared to that beautiful synergy in the classroom. But if we don't make that into more than what it is, then the not that, like being back at home, that isn't a fall. See, whenever there's a hope for something good, there's a fear. You can't get hope without fear. This is the essence of the dualistic notions we create. Dualism is something we create in our mind. It's not actually true. We create good and bad, good and evil. It's not actually inherent to the world. And so whenever we make something personally good or special, we have created the opposite. You can't have something that's special without the fear of not having that, which is evil, you know, or bad. 
So when we're sort of unconsciously addicted to health, then we're unconsciously afraid of ill health. And both of those are stressful. And that's basically how we go through life, where we're unconsciously in need of health and unconsciously afraid of ill health. But we could have, we could cultivate a peaceful, wise relationship with both health and ill health. Like, to live every moment of our life knowing that being healthy feels good, being unhealthy doesn't feel good. But this is all part of life. Sometimes it will feel good, sometimes it won't feel good. The Buddha teaches the eight worldly winds, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, praise and blank. These are the eight worldly winds. You know, we get blown over here, and then we get blown over there, and then we get blown back here. And that isn't a problem, that's just, that is the definition of human existence. And the problem is being in denial of that, or somehow thinking that's that's the way it's supposed to be, because that is the way that it is. We need to leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds. It's always nice to end with a few seconds of quiet. Take a breath or two. And willing to let these teachings in, let them stir the mind to reflect more deeply so that our lives can be a cause for deep wisdom, deep peace and freedom in our own life and in the world. So may this be so. And thanks again everyone for coming tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.